0: You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show sits in a different corner of life in Brooklyn, telling New York stories in the voice of the people. And this week, we ease into the winter of our distanced pent and take a long, hard look at being alone. First, political scientist Samantha Rose Hill teaches us a thing or two about how we experience loneliness. Then... Organizer Victor Pate walks us through the work that he and others are doing to end the torturous institution of solitary confinement. Next, we head to Vermont with Gretchen Berger to meet an ex-Brooklynite who just wanted to get away. Then, Dr. Jeremy Nobel helps us connect with ourselves so that we can eventually reconnect with the people around us. Next, filmmaker Shayna Feinberg reflects on the moment she realized that her COVID quarantine felt strangely familiar. And finally... Brick Radio Jr. correspondent Griff City meditates on our new way of living and reminds us of what life's all about. After that, we're taking a break to figure out how holidays work this year and ring in 2021 safely and sound. We'll be back at the end of February with plenty more to say on the way things are, new people for you to meet, and new stories to tell. Until then, thanks for sticking with us throughout the pandemonium and keeping us company when we needed a friend. It's been a long four years. A long 10 months, a long string of episodes, and a long December. But there's reason to believe that maybe this year will be better than the last in Brooklyn, USA.
1: When I began researching loneliness, uh, one of the things that I was struck by were all of the different kinds of loneliness that... People talked about social loneliness, isolated loneliness, periodic loneliness, chronic, transient, metaphysical, existential, epistemic, endogenous, exogenous, emotional, cognitive loneliness. And so I was studying all of these different accounts of loneliness. And then I realized that they were all dancing around one thing, which is the experience of loneliness, We are recording. Loneliness is a particular experience. It's universal in the sense that everybody experiences loneliness, but we all experience loneliness in a different way. The minute you start a conversation about loneliness with someone, they say, oh, loneliness, I know loneliness. Let me tell you about loneliness. And they want to share their experiences of loneliness and where those experiences of loneliness for them yep. come from.
2: There is a loneliness in this world so great that you can see it in a slow movement of the hands of a clock.
1: My name is Samantha Rose Hill. I'm the Assistant Director of the Hanna Arant Center for Politics and Humanities and Visiting Assistant Professor of Politics at Bard College. I'm also Associate Faculty at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research in New York City. I think that loneliness is often misunderstood. And I think that it's important to talk about what loneliness is and what it's not. Loneliness is not being alone. And today, I think loneliness has become synonymous with the phenomena of social isolation. But loneliness isn't social isolation either. Social isolation is the experience of being cut off from others, of not having meaningful community with others. Loneliness historically and philosophically has always been a social phenomena. We experience loneliness most sharply in the company of others, At some point in fairly recent history, loneliness became the purview of medical experts and was uh, left alone by the humanists and the philosophers. And so now we tend to think of loneliness as a public health problem. Loneliness is a growing
3: health epidemic.
2: There are more adults who admit to being lonely now than just two decades ago.
4: Researchers say we're facing a loneliness epidemic and it's affecting our bodies.
1: If we keep treating loneliness as something that we have to do away with, that we have to cure, we're going to continue pathologizing loneliness and making people feel guilty and ashamed about feeling lonely instead of teaching them how to confront their loneliness, acknowledge it for what it is and reassign meaning to it so that they can be alone with themselves. I grew up lonely. Um, I'm not afraid to say that. Um, And for the better part of my life, at least through my mid-20s, which seems so far away now, I spent looking for community, looking for connection. I lived in an amusement park. I joined a cult. I converted through several religions. I was determined to escape loneliness and find the right community, which could get rid of that feeling, so I never had to sit with it again. And then I realized... um, that it's not going away. Loneliness is with me and no community can can fix that. Philosophers from Plato to Sartre have treated loneliness as an ethical exercise that gives us an opportunity to give shape, give form to our lives, to create our own cartography. Because in the experience of loneliness, we're confronted with the questions of meaning. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? How should I live my life?
2: <laughs> Who are you? Well,
1: I, I, I hardly know,
5: sir. I changed so many times since this morning, you see.
1: And that's not a comfortable set of questions to answer for most people to be aware of the immediacy of one's existence. It's also a reminder of the fact that we exist alone, right? So that even when we're near the people that we love the most, We can experience loneliness and for a lot of people that can be devastating and it can lead to thinking about loneliness in terms of failed expectations in relationships. But the other side of that is that if you didn't experience loneliness, something would be wrong with you, right? The experience of loneliness is evidence that we're social creatures. up until about the 19th century, loneliness actually meant venturing out. It meant leaving one's home. But now it means this kind of stagnation. And so I think the pandemic, uh, which has forced us into social isolation, social distancing, is kind of mirroring the stagnation of democracy in America that we've been experiencing for some years. And it's worsened an already existent existential crisis. This is one of the political things that drew me to studying the history of loneliness and 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 the way that loneliness has changed over time and the way that we talk about loneliness, the way it's appeared in literature, philosophy, poetry. Um, And one of the things that I came to was Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. She gives this new form of loneliness um, a name. She calls it organized loneliness. And organized loneliness is a political form of loneliness. And she argues that it's the underlying ground for all totalitarian movements. And what happened is that political leaders like Hitler and Stalin found a way to transform the everyday experience of loneliness into a mass phenomenon through the use of political propaganda, by destroying people's relationship to reality. You destroy their ability to think. You destroy the relationship that they have with themselves. You destroy the commons. And in doing that, you isolate them. You make them lonely. You can make people lonely by changing the way they think. And that's precisely what political propaganda does. And it makes it impossible to form meaningful relationships when you don't know what's real. You don't know what's false. And so totalitarian leaders like Hitler and Stalin were able to instrumentalize the experience of loneliness and then provide a solution for it through forms of ideological thinking, which gave people an easy sense of meaning that they could hold on to. I think that we've seen this kind of organized loneliness appear in the new waves of populism that have sprung up in the United States and with Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom, um, in Trump's election, Brexit and so on. So then we get to the pandemic and it almost seems like a cruel mirror reflecting back to us the already lonely conditions that so many Americans were dealing with from the drug epidemic to the rising suicide rates that people have been um, experiencing in communities. And one of the texts that I teach in Understanding Loneliness is Herman Melville's uh, story, Bartleby the Scrivener, a story of Wall Street. Bartleby is uh, the, the portrait of refusal and he goes to work uh, in this office And his kind of manager, let us say, um, is constantly telling him what to do or giving him instructions. And when he speaks, if he does, he simply says, I would prefer not to.
6: Bartleby, come here, please.
0: I have some copy to examine. I would prefer not to. Bartleby, did you misunderstand me? I have some copy to check against the original. Come in here and help me. I would prefer not to.
1: And Bartleby continues persistently to keep himself closed off. And so I teach this text in loneliness because it opens up space for conversation about working conditions under capitalism and the way in which they can create loneliness in spaces like an office or cubicle environment. And so it invites that conversation to talk about what it's like to go to work to be socializing constantly, and to not have um, any kind of connection at all uh, with your work that you're making, or with your colleagues, or with the administrators you're reporting to. And so I think that's one way to think about this question of capitalism and loneliness. I think the other way that Hannah Arendt is thinking about it in the origins of totalitarianism is the rise of mass consumer society.
7: Mass consumption makes you the most powerful giant in the land.
1: You can have have a full and rich life, a job that that you like, a marriage, a spouse that you're in love with, you can have children, and still feel lonely on a regular basis because these are separate things. And so loneliness is getting a bad rap is one way to put it. Now. At the same time, I think the problem of social isolation is real. The absence of human connection is real. The hunger that people have for meaning in their lives is real. But I worry that it's only re-pathologizing something that's not a pathology. Loneliness isn't the unwanted stepchild of solitude. Um, you, You experience solitude, you experience loneliness. Um, and they're different experiences.
8: Being lonely, I
9: escape. Because I don't know how to tackle that loneliness. I don't understand what loneliness is, but I'm frightened. This sense of utter...
1: Loneliness is also a reflection of what's good about humanity. If we cured loneliness, if we did away with loneliness, we would be extinguishing part of our humanity, what it is that makes us human and able to relate to one another. One of my favorite quotes about loneliness is a bit counterintuitive, and it's a line from a poem by W.H. Auden. And he says that, to be free is often to be lonely. And I think that really speaks to insist upon one's own way of being in the world. To be independent, self-reliant, to be an individual who exists in relationship to others um, is immensely difficult. And to be free means that one will often be alone.
4: In June, 2020, almost exactly a year after the death of Leilene Polanco in solitary confinement at Rikers Island, Mayor Bill de Blasio made a public promise to end solitary confinement in New York City jails. The city board of correction was expected to vote on a plan in October, but the year is almost over and de Blasio's working group has yet to produce their list of recommendations. Meanwhile, advocates working on the city and state level to end punitive isolation put out their own plan in
10: 2019. As human beings, we need social stimuli. In order for us to develop, in order for us to have socialization skills, we need people. People need each other. In our prisons and jails, use of solitary confinement, it is torture. My name is Victor Pate. I am one of the statewide organizers for the New York Campaign for Alternatives to Isolated Confinement. We are advocating for the passage of a legislative bill called HALT. It stands for Humane Alternatives to Long-Term Isolated Confinement. I came into this work As a result of my personal direct experience of incarceration, I served intermittent stints in solitary confinement myself. That longest period of time being 90 days consecutively. I think that it led me to become an advocate for getting rid of solitary confinement. And I guess I could say I've been in the field for almost 20 years. And I think that we've been working on this bill for about eight years now, since 2012. The U.N. General Assembly in 2015 came up with a resolution that states that no one should be held in any long-term isolated confinement past 15 days, and that it is considered torture.
4: People in solitary confinement in New York prisons generally spend 23 or 24 hours of the day alone. Right now, solitary stints in city-run jails are capped at 30 days. State prisons place no limit on the amount of time a person can spend in isolation. Some people serve years in isolation.
10: We are advocating for no one to be held in any long-term solitary confinement past 15 days. We also are saying that people should be excluded from being placed in solitary confinement. People with mental health, physical disabilities, pregnant women, people that are elderly, 55 years or older, people who have underlying health issues, and people who are LGBTQI. We are actually advocating for alternative residential rehabilitative units, that they be transformative and therapeutic, that they be given interactive time with other people that are in that particular residential rehabilitative unit, that they be given access to psychological and sociological services. It's challenging because we're working within a system that relies on punishment, that relies on retaliation, that relies on breaking people, and a system that's been in place for just about the early 1800s. Quakers were the ones who actually first started utilizing separation, what was thought to be used not as punishment, but as, I guess you can say a timeout that would give people an opportunity to reflect inwardly as well as reflect on the spirituality of it all. That was the original plan. Fast forward, eventually prisons began to use solitary confinement to make people behave, to make people not challenge the system, to make people fall in line. It came to be used as a tool to totally break people. You can go into punitive segregation for breaking institutional rules. You can be placed in administrative segregation because the administration feels that you are a threat to guards or other incarcerated persons. Then you can be placed in your restrictive cell, which is called key lock, which basically means you're kept in your cell 23, 24 hours a day. All of this is used as a means of control. So you go into solitary confinement, and you're kept in a cell by yourself 23, 24 hours a day, and you have no other stimuli, you have no other people to talk to other than maybe the occasional correctional also, sometimes doesn't even stop by yourself. Sometimes get beat up by the staff and you begin to deteriorate psychologically. It doesn't take a long period of time for that to happen because I know my first week, I started talking to myself. And that, me talking to myself, was me trying to hold on to some sense of humanity. Although I realized that there was really nobody else in there with me, this was my way to create an alternative world for me to kind of try to hold on to some sense of reality. A lot of people are not even able to do that. A lot of people deteriorate into a dark hole and they are never able to climb back out of that hole. When my time was up, they just walked me back to the housing unit, gave me my cell assignment, closed me up in the cell, and they walked away. Nobody came to talk to me. Nobody came to see what my mental state of mind was. Nobody came to do anything to see if I was suicidal. You know, they just put me back and that was it. I guess I was expected to act like nothing ever happened to me and that wasn't the case. I was a different person. It had transformed me greatly after the 90 day period, which was like the long period of time that I had been in isolation. It was kind of difficult for me to communicate with people. I always kind of sort of like stood with my back against the wall. I didn't like people to walk behind me. I didn't like people to come and stand next to me. And I would not be in a crowd. I wouldn't be socializing like I normally did before I went in. It made me suspicious of everything and everybody. It was difficult. Fortunately, a few of my associates seen that I was struggling and slowly people began to talk to me a little bit at a time because I couldn't be around a lot of crowds. I was so used to just being by myself. I didn't like to interact with people no more. But eventually that process of transition began to happen through the help of my friend. But through no help of the administration, no psychologist talked to me, no social worker talked to me. I guess they figured whatever happened, happened, whether I would survive or not, you know, depending, totally left up to me. On the other side of that, for people returning back to society, because oftentimes people are released directly from solitary confinement back in the community imagine someone who's been in solitary confinement for five ten fifteen years without any other human stimuli contact conversations etc etc and you are expected to be able to reintegrate to socialize to function to get a job to travel to talk with people people are not given transitional services people are not given psychological services the way that we treat our our most vulnerable populations in our prisons and jail, and especially people who are placed in, you know, solitary confinement, is a recipe for disaster. You know, prisons and jails are not designed to make people better. What is it about correction that prisons and jails do? Nothing. They don't correct anything. We are busy. We are still doing actions rallies, press conferences to bring attention to the deplorableness of the conditions of people in our prisons and jail and to educate the public that oftentimes don't don't have a clue what goes on behind the walls when you talk about lock a person up and throw away the key. You had to think about, well, what happens to a person behind those walls when you throw away the key.
4: Currently, the HALT bill has a majority of 34 co-sponsors in the Senate and 79 co-sponsors in the Assembly. Advocates are calling for the legislature to bring HALT to a vote immediately and for Governor Cuomo to sign it. A new report from Partnership for the Public Good says that the HALT bill would save New York $132 million annually over the next 10 years.
8: It's great because I'm a trained chef, so I can cook all the meals. <laughs> so I'm happy to cook all the meals for a ski season. <laughs> it seems like a pretty good trade-off.
3: <laughs> Meet Megan. She's a chef who's cooked at some of the city's top restaurants and now finds herself in Manchester, Vermont, cooking for her COVID pod of five adults, a seven-year-old, and two French bulldogs. This constellation of people and place is very different than it was at the beginning of 2020. My life in February
8: of 2020 was awesome. I was thoroughly enjoying it. I wasn't working in a restaurant, which was new for me. My wife was working full time, making good enough money that I only had to work part time and just seemed great. I mean, I had a lot of free time to myself That is like the most important thing for me. I had a lot of free time to myself.
3: Time to oneself has very different connotations now. And most of us have either had too much of it or too little. I went searching for Brooklynites who've traded the pandemic isolation of the city for the companionship of friends and family elsewhere. I wanted to learn about their new environments, what they missed about their lives in the city and when they're planning to come back. So I packed up my microphone and mask and headed up to Vermont to spend a few days outside with Megan and several members of her pod. We started at the farmer's market to pick up food for the week. Where
8: are we? We're at the West River Farmer's Market in Londonderry, Vermont. They don't always have a sign in, but if there's an outbreak anywhere, they'll have everybody sign in so they can do contact tracing. I found a great butcher. He basically gives me ham hocks for free so I can play with smoking them in my little Weber kettle, which I've been doing a lot of barbecuing since not being in the city and I've actually had an opportunity to barbecue and grill. So my barbecue game is Super on point right now. Hey, hello, how's it going? All right, this is my friend Gretchen. Just wanted to meet you guys because, um, I buy so much meat from you. I mean, uh,
3: this this whole corona thing has really brought people to us, Mm
8: -hmm. yeah. It's
3: (laughs) definitely been a blessing, right? Like Megan, (laughs) yes, that's right.
8: I mean, I've definitely benefited from it. My, I mean, I just smoked five hawks. Yesterday. Oh look. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> These are also um well actually they live they've been living up here for the last two years, but they're also Brooklyn people. Hi <sighs> hey, guys. Hi As far as community goes, I can't say that I know anybody else by name, but I've just struck up conversations with people like People just talk to you like they will just talk to you (laughs) like they won't in the city. We're down the road from the West River Farmer's Market at Grandma Miller's Pastries and Pies. As far as my research has gone, this is the best place for cookies and pies and a damn fine cheesecake, actually. All right,
11: four dozen cheese, uh, four dozen cheesecakes. Four yes. dozen cookies and one cheesecake. Yes. All right, so how long have you
8: been up here? I've been here since July, but the family's been here since March. You
11: went for a weekend and got
8: stuck? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. My wife and I live in Brooklyn Been a very large apartment building with 300 residents between two buildings. We are all here together because Lisa and Robert and Jen and I are, have been good friends for, like family friends for the last 16 years. So when shit was hitting the fan, they invited us to stay here in Vermont with them because they, we're gonna be here for the school year for their seven-year-old son. Y'all buckled in? Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 I'm not buckled, I'm not buckled. Okay, we're not moving. Oh, no, you can... It's been a blessing. Yeah. And I love living with these people. I love our relationship. They work? Yeah. Jen went to go look at the house.
3: Megan's wife, Chen is a partner in the food planning, shopping, and cooking for the pod. She describes herself as a homebody who's familiar with expanded configurations of family.
4: I come from a very large extended family, so my grandparents and my cousins were always coming over. That dynamic isn't strange. I mean, certainly having two families live together could wind up going badly and it's just been great. It's been great to get to know our friends in a different way. Uh,
8: And we're gonna go by the chocolate barn. So... So we should go in. Okay. I've never wanted to have kids. So that's what makes this experience extra, extra special because I get to experience this through the eyes of a child. There's a lot of joy in it. There's a lot of pain in it. There's a lot of frustration, and it is a
3: unique experience. Yeah. Wynn is seven and the youngest member of the pod. He's the lucky or unlucky kid who has four adults attending to him, which means there's always a playmate and always somebody to cook him a meal. I hear you have some pretty delicious meals happening here. Megan
5: and Jen are making it. My grandma, she is too. Any favorite things? Mm. Spaghetti and meatballs is pretty good.
3: It's a standard. Good standard. For Even sure. though
5: I'm vegetarian.
3: Are there things that you get to do in Vermont that you, you don't do when you're in Brooklyn? I can skateboard a lot. You know,
5: there's not a lot of skateboard parks in Brooklyn. What's that? What's a manual? A manual is when you go like this.
3: Brooklyn and their lives there are ever-present for the pod. When I asked Win's mom, Lisa, about going back, she said she thinks about it a lot.
1: All the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. And that's probably my greatest source of anxiety. I worry that we've become a little bit rootless somehow. I'm not sure it's going to feel right to just go back at the end of the school year.
8: Similarly, I worry a
1: lot about making a decision to switch gears and be here permanently because I feel that our lives in New York City for all of us, one way or another, are somewhat hard won. And it does feel a loss to give that up.
8: I want to go back because I want to go back to some sort of life that I knew before this. But if we got really awesome jobs here (laughs) and it didn't make sense to go back, I'd be open to that too. We started out this journey just wanting to do something different. And I I don't see that changing. I think that we're still open to doing something different. As far as going back to Brooklyn, I mean, I guess maybe it's the end of school year. That's my guess. Okay. I recognize that I am immensely privileged and I'm able to see this pandemic as a huge blessing of a time to slow down and have the opportunity to stop and rewind a bit, do something different. So for me, it's been a real blessing.
3: I met up with Megan and the pod in October and so I check back in with them to see how things are going now. The farmer's market is closed for the season, but the ski slopes have just opened and last week they got 36 inches of snow. Everyone in the pod is looking forward to Christmas and the menu is set. A ham, scalloped potatoes, and green beans. This pod of family and friends and family friends will gather around the table to enjoy a five-star meal and a lively conversation as they do every evening, together.
7: The fundamental of, of loneliness, the answer, the, the antidote or the opposite of loneliness is connection. And I think what often surprises people is the pathway to connection with other people is often goes right through the connection and the need to have a connection with yourself. Am I comfortable with who I am? Do I have conversations about my own positioning in the universe, mission, purpose, how I'm spending your time? Get to know yourself. My name's Jeremy Nobel and I'm a medical doctor and a public health practitioner and also a poet. There's a lot of confusion between what is loneliness? What is being alone? What is being isolated? They're not the same thing. Being isolated is objective. It's really the the situation where there's no one around you. Being lonely is subjective. It's how we feel. And it's the gap between the social connection we would like to have, the social milieu, the friendships, the feeling of connection and belonging we aspire to, and what we feel we actually do have. And that, that gap, as it increases, can actually be the source of quite a bit of despair, not just emotional, but their physiologic consequences as well. So the epidemiology that began coming out you know, in 2012, 2014, showed that loneliness had a risk of early death of 30%. And just to give your listeners some sense of that, that's on par with smoking. You know, until recently, loneliness wasn't even on people's radar as a public health concern. Well, now it is. But it's different than being alone. Being alone actually can be a source of great... Spiritual and intellectual comfort. It can be so positive an experience that we even have a fancy word for it. We call it solitude. And you can argue, and I believe it's case, that humans need time alone to make sense of thoughts and feelings, to um, consider what their path is through the world, and to be aligned with that path. So the Unlonely Project is exactly that, it's a project started in May of 2016. It has three goals. One is to increase the awareness of loneliness and its toxicities, its medical, medical, physical and social health consequences. The second is to reduce stigma around loneliness so that people are willing to talk about it, engage with it. and explore it as something that they can address in their own lives and then the third goal is to develop and make available creative arts-based programs that could foster a sense of connection as well as encourage people to develop the skills and capabilities to lead a more connected life. We have programs that meet people where they are We've been doing creativity circles now for six or seven years and they're, they're very structured, you know, it's a combination of mindfulness, so you do a little bit of mindful activities to be centered in the group. And then there'd be a creative expression exercise to draw something, collage something, do some expressive writing, do some movement, all kinds of activities. And then people would then reflect on that, they would comment, crosstalk. You know, what What did they find interesting in each other's stories? And then we would also uh, use a technique called social-emotional learning to encourage people to build social skills so they could stay better connected even beyond the creativity circles. As COVID happened, as you might imagine, face-to-face meetings were no, no longer possible. So we converted and rebuilt our creativity circles so they're available virtually.
8: If you would like to share anything you've written, anything you've drawn, anything you've thought about, please raise your hand.
6: That's I
5: When we
11: focus on what we
6: create, we feel fulfilled with compassion. I'm 25 years old, and it's been about seven years since I've lived at home. Realizing that
7: no matter how far we are, we're still connected by hearts. Moving back in to be with my parents
2: just while they're dealing with The the, the craziness.
7: Give us
9: hope, energy, and safety. Jonathan, some
7: notes. they're all going incredibly well. It turns out older adults can be very facile on Zoom and really enjoy that experience very much, and feel more connected through the deliberate use of creative arts to explore thoughts and feelings. There are factors in the modern world that are making it harder to connect with each other on in authentic ways. You have 6,000 friends on Facebook, but if you get sick tomorrow, who's bringing you lunch? Which of your 6,000 friends? But digital also enables other powerful ways to be connected in some authentic mechanisms, which is something that we at The Unlonely Project are promoting. Starting four years ago, we began the Unlonely Film Festival. And the idea is that by... Watching a short film on the topic of loneliness, first of all, you learn more about loneliness by seeing how it takes shape in other people's lives, not just your own. And you see how widely um, distributed loneliness is as an activity. So older adults are lonely, veterans, people in the LGBT community, people of color, people with major illness, caregivers. And then you begin to say, wow, maybe loneliness is just part of the human experience. Maybe the real challenge is how do you navigate it? How do you get curious about it and learn what you can from it? As far as we could tell, every country around the world, and this is even before uh, COVID, was challenged by a growing amount of loneliness and isolation for any number of reasons. The UK began noticing this maybe a little ahead of some of the other countries and they uh, created a Ministry of Loneliness a minister of loneliness reporting to the prime minister. I think that office was started in 2016, so roughly around when we got started. I think every country will solve the question of how do we deal with loneliness differently, but I think what is very encouraging in the US is it's not a secret anymore that loneliness is a huge public health issue. So maybe one of the silver linings of COVID-19 is challenging and as is, is, is difficult a burden that is for so many, Is it's taken the issue of loneliness and put it in the forefront. It's also removed stigma around it, interestingly. People are willing to talk about loneliness now because, in an interesting way, we're lonely not because there's something defective about us or we're, you know, if people really knew us, they wouldn't be our friend. We're lonely because we're physically isolated to survive through a common threat. And so, in a way, the isolation right now is connecting us. Now, it's also isolating us, so you need to use technologies to actually bring people together and allow them to express thoughts and feelings and be connected, but our programs do that, other kind of programs. Listening to this podcast could do it for some people. They can then get so excited, they recommend it to their friends, and then they have a, a you know a, a phone call or a, a Zoom call afterwards to talk about loneliness. I'd love it if this podcast had that impact for people.
2: What's everybody's favorite uh, holiday movie?
9: Oh, that's a good question. Oh. You know, like uh, after I moved to New York, and then uh, I tried to learn about the culture here, right? So and the Christmas story, so I never watched that before. Of course, when I was in Japan, after I moved here, and someone of course, recommended, and I saw the advertisement. And the very, very first time I watched, I was like, probably I missed like you know some like jokes or you know that based on the cultural stuff yeah But it just so feel like so warm. (laughs) And also even like uh, we share, I mean, with different culture, like uh, I grew up in Japan like, uh, you know, very different things we are doing Christmas season. Basically there is no such a thing, Christmas in Japan, but we actually took the idea as kind of like uh, the decoration and the people gathering, having a party and dinner. So it's just nice to think to you know, like uh, doing this. So I watched uh, the story is just so cute. It's just so cute, lovely. <laughs> about you know the boys and uh, yeah, I just like the movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a good, good little piece of Americana. I know,
9: yeah.
6: yeah. No one else has a favorite Christmas movie? I mean,
9: I shocking. do.
12: I have a whole bunch.
6: No. <laughs> I um, all the British ones. I like like Love Actually. I like uh, The Holiday. The holiday, yeah, the holiday was really cute. No, I don't know that. The one with like Cameron Diaz um, and Kate Winslet. Um, what else? Bridget Jones' Diary is that like a Christmas movie? Kinda. I like that. I've never seen that. But maybe I'll the watch it.
12: One. Maybe I'll watch it this Christmas. Home, Ooh, Alone, Kyra yeah. also says Home Alone. Oh, Home Alone. Yeah. Yes. yes. Oh, Charlie. I bet that's like.
2: Isn't that house in Evanston? Isn't that? No, it's in, it's in, uh, well, Matt, I think, but not yeah. too far from me. And definitely like the the church where, yeah, you know, he goes and, like, sees the singers. That's like very close to me. So, yeah, it was all. And then I think I they filmed like, maybe it was like Home Alone 4. They filmed some of it in my um, middle school. I think I was an extra in one of it, but I haven't actually watched
6: what <laughs> you were an extra in home alone four. how did you not <laughs> we've had so I many like, like, calls, I'm gonna... like opportunities and you never brought this up
12: that's
6: so funny
2: because after two no it wasn't four maybe it was three you know kevin like stopped being or macaulay culkin wasn't in them anymore yeah oh geez it wasn't three or four was there a five <laughs> Was this movie actually made, or did I just imagine?
12: Yeah, it was a, a fever dream you had in middle
6: school. I remember when the first Home Alone came out. I was I was still living in the UK, and every it was like this craze. Like everyone was so obsessed with that, and and then I remember not too long after, or before Jurassic Park came out, and it you know that was like a big thing. Everything was like dinosaurs and.
12: Home Alone only has a 65% rating on Rotten Tomatoes.
6: That's bullshit. That
12: is egregious. Yeah, wow. The second
6: one or the first one?
12: The first one. That's crazy. What? That is a 100% movie. Easy. That's so stupid. Emily, you have a favorite Christmas movie? No, I'm trying
4: to think. Um, Home Alone is definitely a classic. Um, uh like Nightmare
12: Before Christmas.
6: Yeah, <laughs> that was a good yeah. Christmas movie. Um, Those are so like chic. Do that guys one is them? so good. Wow, it's
12: so, so good. good. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, we should
6: watch. I should watch it. Again. What was
12: the one you said, Bridget Jones? Oh, I have Bridget a watch Jones. list. I'm gonna put these on my watch list. <laughs> nice. watch <laughs> list. Um, I got it. It's gonna be a long December.
2: Um, did anybody say It's a Wonderful Life yet?
12: Oh, no, the- oh, yeah. I've never seen that. I- oh, it's
2: man, really I watched Canadian it, I think it was last year, and I def- definitely, I mean, I'd seen it, like, 100 times, but still, like, makes me cry a little. Yeah,
9: yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, was a very, very first time, uh, a friend of mine, she introduced me about the movie, and then uh, while she was talking about it, she already cried.
2: <laughs> so, Just talking about
12: it? <laughs>
9: I didn't know anything about that, right? And after I watched, it, like, oh, yeah, now I see. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I weirdly think
12: mine, I don't know if this counts, but I think Trading Places is my favorite Christmas movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it counts, but there it. is, like, a Santa suit, and it does take place around Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say that, that counts. Yeah. Sense. I don't know what it takes to be a Christmas movie.
4: That's
6: enough.
12: That was such a good one. I love that very movie. Very funny. Mm. I think I know every line in that movie. I watched it <laughs> so much as a kid.
6: I think you were the one who told me to watch that, and I oh, watched really? it last year. Yeah, uh-huh. and it was so funny. It's so good. It's just so good. Yeah.
12: I remember for Christmas, occupied such a weird part of my brain, like. I like it occupies this confused part of my brain where I don't know if it's a Halloween movie or a
6: Christmas movie. Yeah,
12: and it's I like that about it. It just just keeps you on your toes about what time of year it is. Yeah. Wow. Nineteen
6: ninety-three. That's like so long ago. Was that Home Alone? No, that was Nightmare Before Christmas. God. Wow. So ahead of its time. I feel like that movie could have been made like two years ago. That's wild. Tim really
11: knows. It was week 10 of the pandemic and I was about 40 minutes into a Google search of Brad Pitt buzz cut when I had a feeling of deja vu. There was another 10 week period when I was more or less locked in the house and the outside world felt dangerous. It was seven years ago when my husband Chris got sober. You're probably wondering why I was looking for images of Brad Pitt with a buzz cut. Or maybe you're not wondering that at all because you too are 10 plus weeks into homeschooling a five-year-old. You see, I was seriously considering recreating all those images of Brad using Monty, my kid, the five-year-old I mentioned earlier. I even spent a good ten minutes just trying to find a child-sized white cowboy hat. I had already decided I'd use a lollipop wherever Brad had a cigarette. I think it's fair to say that I've lost a portion of my mind in quarantine. I called to Chris who was in the bathroom playing video games and I said, Two things. I said, One, should we recreate these photos of Brad Pitt with Monty? And doesn't this time remind you of when you got sober? Maybe it's absurd to compare one man's drying up to a global pandemic, but the feelings I had were similar. No, I didn't have to wear a mask and gloves to leave my house, but literally every outing we went on felt scary. Would someone offer Chris booze? Would he take it? Would he see some booze and want it? Would he accidentally drink booze and not be able to stop? The world felt like an obstacle course where every obstacle was booze. I said to Chris, when you were sobering up, the outside world felt really dangerous to me like it does now. Do you feel that way?
13: Um, I mean, I don't I don't know that it felt dangerous to me. It's just that we were like we are now, making the decision to be safe. And safety meant staying inside.
11: But isn't that the same thing?
13: Well, I think it's just a matter that you're focusing on the outside was dangerous and I'm focusing on the inside being safe. You know, because I could stay inside, control the environment, and reduce my risk and reduce our risk.
11: Then he said, I mean,
13: I think when I was drinking and using drugs, I was searching for something outside of myself to tell me who I was. Then when I stopped drinking, I had to remember who I was. And so I kind of became the person I was before I started drinking, which is a 13-year-old kid. (laughs) And before I quit, thinking about quitting, Produce produces like, you know, feeling in me.
11: He described the feeling to me and I was like, that's called FOMO. But he didn't know the acronym despite being a millennial.
13: I thought I should be out there. Uh, people expected me to be there. Uh, making people laugh, talking to bartenders, getting free drinks. But then um, when I quit, I did have some switch go off in my brain where You know, I just realized wherever I would have been, it would have been me who was there. And so, wherever I am, it'll be me who's there. So I can just enjoy who I am, wherever I'm at, at that moment.
11: Wait, that was complicated. Let's hear that again.
13: Wherever I would have been, it would have been me who was there. And so, wherever I am, it'll be me who's there. So I can just enjoy who I am, Wherever I'm at at that moment.
11: By week 11 of the pandemic, things seemed to be changing course. Cuomo said we could begin gathering in groups of 10, but then something happened. We were in a new moment. And along with thousands and thousands of other people, we felt like the safety of being inside was less important than standing in solidarity. So whether we're outside protesting or inside recreating Brad Pitt photos, wherever we are, that's where we'll find ourselves.
5: Hey everyone, welcome to Griffin's World. Today, we are gonna talk about solitude. Well, this pandemic, we have been alone and we haven't been really allowed to go anywhere. We've had to stay in our houses and be safe. We should always wear a mask when we're outside and be very safe. But also it can be very hard sometimes when you can't see your loved ones. When you can't see them, you you can call them. And some people need more help during this virus and they need more help all the time and we should always be helping those people those people should always think that they will be remembered in everything so we should always be when we are alone just remembering that our loved ones are there and that we have a great life if you just be nice kind and are, and are nice to other people, you can be the best. Well, that is the end of this segment. Uh, thank you for listening. Brooklyn!
0: Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias.
4: And me, Emily Bogosian,
0: And me, Shirin Barahi.
2: And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer.
0: And me, Mayumi Sato with help this week from Brick Radio Jr. correspondent Griff City, Taylor Cook, Lauren Germain, Gretchen Berger, and Shana Feinberg. You can watch Shana's short film on sobriety and quarantine on the Brooklyn USA playlist at youtube.com bricktv. We're already hard at work on the next season of the show, so if you want to tell us a story or somehow end up on the podcast, check the show notes for a link to our guide on recording yourself and sending it in. And if you like what you hear or think we got something wrong, comment, like, share and subscribe and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit BrickArtsMedia.org slash radio. Bye, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy
6: holidays. You guys are amazing. Have a wonderful holiday vacation. Please stay sanitized, safe. And um, thank you for everything that you've done to help us navigate this crisis and we continue to navigate it, but please know how valuable you all are. Drink, be merry, party as much as possible. I'm gonna go listen to music and dance by myself. Bye everybody,
2: happy holidays. Happy holidays, it was fun. holidays. Amazing. Love y'all. Happy holidays. Happy holidays for my family to you guys. Thank you. Miss you. you. Yeah. Miss you. Happy so. Holidays to the brick. Happy right. holidays, Happy folks. Holidays.
9: Happy holidays. Love you guys. Love you guys. Happy
0: holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.